when you look at the searches under those terms, it all has not a positive connotation. It is all about the money and how these industries aren't serving the patient. And so that's another reason why I would say we'd want to stay away from that in our field of medicine. It's very, infertility is very complex. It comes with a lot of opinions. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today I'm here with Rebecca Flick, who is the Vice President of Communications and Programs for Resolve, the National Infertility Association. Rebecca joined Resolve in 2005. Her main responsibilities include creating and implementing Resolve's communication plans and overseeing some signature events like National Infertility Awareness Week and Night of Hope, their online strategies, as well as increasing the infertility, communicate, the infertility community's engagement in Resolve's volunteer advocacy and fundraising act. Activities. Rebecca has walked the walk. She was diagnosed with infertility in 2006, has been through the rigmarole as we'll talk today, and she lives in Virginia with her husband, son, and daughter. Rebecca Flick, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. This is pretty cool because you and I have been a few years. Yeah, I've always used you as a sounding board for patient advocacy, patient relations, and just getting to the heart of what we should be keeping in mind when we're communicating with patients, when we're providing services. And I want to explore that today. I appreciate the opportunity. I probably have a lot to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's prove it. Okay. I wanted to start off with is that you never liked the field being called an industry. You never liked assisted reproductive technologies being referred to as an industry. And I wanted to start with that sentiment from you and, and see what that means. Sure. So I want to give this some context. I think when I hear the term industry being used around infertility, art, IVF, usually in headlines like the IVF industry or infertility industry or fertility industry set to reach billions this year. And I think when we hear the word industry, as it relates to a field of medicine, it commercializes it. And that makes it harder for a group like Resolve, if that term is used over and over and over again, it makes it harder sometimes for us to advocate for increased access. So if a legislator, a lawmaker, a media person, if they internally feel like this industry, and I'm putting that in air quotes for those of you that can't see me, if it's an industry, it's commercialized. Therefore, there are big profits and all these people are making money off of these people who are just trying to have a family. It makes it harder from our point of view to get the message across that people who struggle to build a family deserve access to safe medical treatments. And that's why sometimes with you, I get on my soapbox about the word industry purely from a advocacy and awareness point of view. That makes sense. There's a couple of points that I wrote down that we can hit. Who's it coming from? Because based on what you just said, it sounds like it's coming from just other people covering it, like the 
newspapers or social media or do you feel like it's also coming from within the field? Well, sure. I mean, there's different segments of the infertility community that are industry. I mean, pharmaceuticals are an industry. It doesn't matter if it's pharmaceuticals for diabetes or cancer or infertility. Pharmaceuticals are an industry, you know, so people internally might might use the word industry. And again, Resolve's not here to say no one can use that term, ban it from, you know, your vocabulary. But the reason why Resolve chooses not to is because words matter. And that's why you'll hear myself or Resolve's president and CEO, Barb Kalora, if she's doing media interviews, she will not refer to it as a industry. That totally makes sense from Resolve positioning. When you say that the word commercializes it, I mean, is there any way of avoiding that? That's what we'll probably, that's the rabbit hole we'll probably delve more into in this mm-hmm. conversation is that at the end of the day, this is so difficult in terms of science and technology. It's so expensive in terms of the advances that, is there any way of it, of this just not being commercialized? And I always wonder, is it just semantics to say, you know, we're not a business, we're not industry, or we don't refer to people as customers. We'll talk more about that. But does it end up being semantics if at the end of the day, given the supply and demand of what's going on, there are people that are exchanging services for products and services for money? Correct. And I'm not a business person per se. It's not my 20 plus years has been in nonprofits and advocacy work. So, you know, the definition of business, yes, you're going to make a profit. There's going to be a transaction involved. But in the U.S. as a whole, you know, especially something as delicate as infertility treatments, commercialization of those treatments can often become dangerous for patients who are trying to access them. The haves and the haves nots. And so, you know, I think I'm not going to, I'm not a practice manager. I'm not, Resolve is not in the business to tell practices how to run their business. So we are just focused on awareness and advocacy, and that's what our lens is. And we know that constant reminders and, and to influencers out there who are influencing people's access to medical treatments, if they perceive it as, a, as an industry or commercialization, and it's billions and billions of dollars, and all these people are getting rich off of infertility, then that's, that's not good for our cause. So I would hope that as a community, we could together recognize what, what it is. It's very complex. And I know we're going to talk about patients versus customers, and, but it's complex and it's made up of lots of different people seeking lots of different services. Do you feel like that lens of being referred to as an industry is more commonly applied to the fertility field as opposed to healthcare at large or other segments of healthcare? So like I, oncology uh, or pediatrics or. Yeah, I was so often we say, you know, you never hear people use the term cancer industry. Um, and so I kind of, we kind of said that, say that a little flippantly without <laughs> much backing to it. So I Googled cancer industry and I Googled infertility industry and I Googled diabetes industry. And when you look at the searches under those terms, it all has not a positive connotation. It is all about the money and how these industries aren't serving the patient. And so that's another reason why I would say we'd want to stay away from that in our 
field of medicine. It's very, infertility is very complex. It comes with a lot of opinions from the outside world, whether it's religious or financial or spiritual. There are a lot of people who don't agree with reproductive medicine. So let's not keep piling on by commercializing it and calling it an industry. I'm forming this opinion right now. So everybody, audience, bear with me. Rebecca, bear with me. This is all coming into Griff's mind, right? Things that I've thought from time, but based on what you've said about it, the main concern for resolve for patient advocates is that it makes it a lot more difficult to advocate for patients if they're viewed as a commercial interest, if it's, if the field is referred to as an industry. And just from my end, I've, I feel like it's harder for me to advocate for patients when, when practices or providers, or I suppose other people in industry don't consider themselves a business or don't consider the patients as customers, because I often feel like providers, especially know what you're saying and agree and don't want to refer to their practices as a business. They don't want to refer to mm-hmm. patients as a customer. Right. But at the end of the day, they still are. That, that practice still has to pay the bills. They have yep. salary. They have profit. They have expenses. And, and so there's this inherent drive to increase profit, minimize expenses, or at, at the very least sustain the business-based amid competition, but there isn't often a willingness to say this is the amount of profit that we want to generate, or this is the business goal that we have. And subsequently, this is how we're going to serve our customers in order to get there. Does that make sense? Sure. And you know, I said before, like, I'm not a practice manager, so I would hope that from a patient advocacy point of view, practices were looking at their patients holistically and from a medical intervention point of view, like they are there to treat their patient, treat the disease or condition that has led them into their offices. But from a business point of view, I would imagine they would want to follow best practices in treating someone like a customer in either to get in hopes that the treatment works or that they return or that they recommend their practice to somebody else. So I'm sure from a business point of view, there are people that need to help guide this field of medicine from a consumer-driven point of view. You know, there is research that shows that people don't access medical treatment out of fear and out of access. So either they're afraid of what's going to happen and what, you know, what is ahead of them, or they don't have access to insurance coverage or don't have access to the funds to pay out of pocket. So that those are two big barriers right then and there that a medical practice for someone with infertility needs to overcome for their patient. So I'm sure that's very customer and business driven that the things that they need to do to get those people in the door. So, you know, I, I still think that best practices in a business setting can happen, you know, whether it, you know, looking at the patient as a customer from the moment they walk in the door to the moment that they leave. But as a whole, you're still providing someone with medical care. And from Resolve's point of view, we want to make sure patients have access to the safe and sound and, and available medical interventions. And that's why it makes it harder if the perception is fertility is this massive industry that just cares about the bottom line. Because you know, and I know that the people that are working in this field of medicine are some of the most compassionate people that we've ever come across. And so we just 
you know, we don't want to continue to hurt any reputation. And by the way, to me, that also includes some of the people that work for some of these very large networks that are partly owned by private equity firms. I know it's pretty mm-hmm. fashionable to uh, just take a dig and say that some of those folks are just in it for the money, but we know a lot of those folks and some of them are 100% about the patient as though they worked for a health system or a university or a private practice mm-hmm. or anybody else. Yeah, I think one of the leaders in this field, he's a former doctor, David Sable. He writes a great blog on Forbes.com and he uses the word industry. He, did, he, he I was reading something before we talked about and he did use the word industry and I don't think it's necessarily in a negative way, but he gives, you know, for anybody listening, he gives a really great perspective on the business side of this medical intervention and in, in this healthcare field of medicine. And so I would encourage reader, you know, listeners to, to read up on him, but he also gives a very compassionate plea for access. So he's very much an advocate. And I should mention he's a former Resolve board member, just for full disclosure. It's not an endorsement by Resolve, but it is a recommendation of a great read. Is it fair to recap this in saying that people have a certain set of rights as patients and a certain set of privileges as customers. Do you have a better way of recapping that? Uh, no, it's interesting. I, I think because when you sent me the question, it wasn't necessarily phrased that way, but when you repeated it, it is actually pretty impactful. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but as a patient, you're entitled to safe and available medical treatment. Okay. Yeah. And then as a, a customer, especially one that's paying out of pocket for this medical treatment, there's certainly an expectation of being treated well, you know, customer service, but it's a medical treatment. So the outcome is completely up to so much. There's so many factors in this. You know, I, I think something that is, is always a disservice to patients who are seeking medical intervention for infertility or or those that struggle to build a family for other reasons. It's never, everyone's afraid to kind of admit that this is a course of treatment. So if you were facing cancer, the oncologist would never say, come in for chemo once, we'll see how it goes and move on. There's an expectation there that you're going to be facing a course of treatment. And I think this field of medicine would help a lot of patients understand and kind of help erase the fear of failure right out of the gate if we approach this as a course of treatment. But again, if you're a cash paying, you know, out of pocket paying patient, that's, you know, could set up for a a number of, of other fears and barriers. So, you know, again, I think that's where that kind of commercialization industry crosses over with medical care when people are paying so often paying out of pocket. And after time, it's difficult to decipher what's the customer privileges or what's the patient rights as technology and service and best practices just become part of the standard of care. For example, having a patient portal in 1995 isn't a part of the standard of care, right? Right, right. But Mm in 2019, you go online and view your protocol, it, it is. And so there's the standard just sort of raises. I bring this up because it's important to recognize in our field too, standard of just about everything raises in almost every segment, whether it's education or healthcare or commerce, because 
we, you, you can think of about everything. What was a school a hundred years ago mm-hmm. would not pass for a school in the 1950s, right. which didn't have the smart chalkboards and the computers and the technological infrastructure that it has today. Right. And what, what might have passed for a hotel 50 years ago, uh, you know, just drive into the motel and maybe you've got a fan and there's a TV with three channels would not get you beyond a one star Yelp rating. Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, expectations definitely are set or higher and higher. And those expectations, even if they're driven by the consumer world, their ways into the field and ultimately affect the expectation for the standard of care. And especially because what what we deal with at our company very often has to do with digital media, social media, that in the beginning, that was just sort of marketing. It was just marketing on Facebook. But eventually, Facebook Messenger just becomes the way people want to communicate. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, that was, an, a, that was a nicety. But in 2023, that might be requisite, that if you're not... Right able to communicate in certain channels that you're simply not participating in the process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, patients need to understand too, that, you know, they are, you know, it's every generation is more informed than the next, even, you know, even I went through treatment in 2006 and 2007, and it is so different than it is today. And there's constant, um, well, if I can, if I can, if I have thought for a second, so that what are a couple of examples? Can you think of any off the top of your head in ways that treatment has changed so much since 2006? Um, single embryo transfer, frozen embryo transfers have shown to be much more successful over the years, understanding, you know, kind of trying to decrease multiples, trying to think, you know, just, you know, education around dispensing your meds. I think what else has changed since I went through it? I think the biggest was like single embryo transfer. You know, now there's, you know, PGD. You know, the big thing when I went through treatment was ICSI. That was like the latest thing was ICSI. And now, you know, it's rarely, I don't know if it's rarely used, but it's not as talked about as much as it, used, as it was back then. And, you know, it's only been a decade. So there are always people trying to make this science better. And I think patients need to, if they want to be good patients and they want to be good customers, that they should be informed, but also make sure that they have the information that they need from their practice to feel comfortable, you know, knowing how much time they need to take off for work and, you know, knowing where they can go for answers. If, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and they forget how to administer their, their medications, you know, things like that, because I think a lot of people go to the internet for those things and that information isn't always the best. So while patients are more informed than ever now, so than ever, you also have to vet the quality of the information that you're getting online and know that, if you've chosen the right practice and feel comfortable that you're going to get the best information from them in my point of view. It's definitely, I don't want to call that uh, a millennial habit either, but there's, I I guess a a behavior maybe that's more prevalent among millennials and then just aging up, which is the information ceiling 
is just higher and higher and higher. Meaning if I read this about single embryo transfer, I want to read every possible link if that's what my mind is occupied on right now. And because many of the people that are going through this are in a very stressful position where they're sometimes thinking singularly about one thing, that ceiling is very high, sometimes on a pretty narrow function of topics. Uh And practices have a really hard time of meeting that information demand. Yeah. And you also don't have, you know, probably a a ton of time when you're going through the process to ask a lot of questions. So, you know, always make sure we're kind of getting into more of advice now, but always make sure that you have your list of questions. Um, But in terms of like trusting information that you find online, you know, I just think trusted resources are really important. You know, if it's medical advice, make sure it's from a either respected nonprofit or an accredited nonprofit written by medical expert, you know, obviously resolve was founded on support and we host a variety of free support groups across the country and peer to peer support is really important. And you'll go to those people too, for information, but also, you know, back it up with your own own research as well. Speaking of that, let me use this opportunity to give Resolve plug. I won't ask you to. I will do it. And I'm not doing it for Resolve. I'm not, I'm actually not even doing it for the patients in this particular context. In this particular context, I'm doing it for the practices. And I think this blends perfectly with how investing further into this standard of care benefits the business and vice versa, which is every single practice in the United States, every single REI practice, everyone, if you have an IVF lab or if you're doing fertility treatment of every kind, of any kind, should be a professional member of Resolve. It's cheap. It's too cheap in my opinion. I keep their prices. So you might want to before they listen to me. But the question is not, well, what if there are some other clinics that are sponsors of Resolve? What are they getting for that? That's not the exchange. That's not the value exchange. The value exchange is that there are a community of people of whom Resolve has already become a leader, information and support that they provide to those people. So the community is assembled. And then as a practice, as an REI practice and IVF center, you have the opportunity to serve that community because they've already gathered some of it together in your area and you have the opportunity to associate your name with the brand of the community that they've built. But by serving the community, you increase your own leverage in the communities. Why I wrote a book called The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing. It's 60 pages of free information for people. Why have a podcast called Inside Reproductive Health, why I have blogs based on insider knowledge from the field and and inside perspectives. It's because by serving any community, you increase your own social leverage in the community. And I think that is a big, it's all as an example here, but it's one of the clearest ways that I can illustrate how if if you're thinking of yourself as a business in a good way, if you're just realizing this is what I'm out to do, then you reverse engineer, how do I get there? And mm-hmm. one of the ways you get there is by super serving the community. And that's a, a pretty straightforward way of doing it. Yeah. I mean, I know you didn't want to 
make me give the plug, but I will definitely give a plug for resolve. And I think that when practices and, and businesses that serve, because we didn't even touch on people that are, are trying to adopt, we would never call adoption an industry. That would, you know, also commercialize it in a way that is illegal. <laughs> you know, there's no, you know, there's, there's a, that's a whole other discussion for adoption experts, but our community, Resolve's community is so much more than the people going through medical treatment. They might start there or they might end there or they might never get there, but they are, you know, using gestational carriers and they are adopting and they are using all sorts of services to help them to help them through this. And if you want to set us, us apart in this community and not be focused on an industry the best way you can help do that is support the charities and the nonprofits in this space who are working to improve access and providing support. And that is something that we can all definitely do together and kind of flip, you know, flip the thought that we're this big, bad, multi-billion dollar industry on its head, which how much the, the field gives back to the nonprofits in this space and not just resolve. There's, there's many. Yeah, I think probably in any given field that there's always examples of there are people who are going to do well and then there are people who might do that with in a way that doesn't really serve anyone Mm -hmm. but themselves. Probably the way I would wrap this all up is that there's tremendous business value in serving the in serving whichever population that you serve but serving them as a community. And I think that that the competition of business can increase that, can raise the standard of, of care that way. Competitors are raising the expectations or because society is raising the expectations and that's driven by commerce at large. Or it can just be some people living in the Hamptons that have always made the money just making more money. And I think that depends on how people in in the field and in the economy participate in that and my preaching but also my learned business experience concludes that using business goals for the right purpose can benefit the community and serving the community with no expectation can benefit the business yeah and words matter remember that to you and the rest of society less than they do to me but you're absolutely right they do to so many people i personally hate that about our society but it's the truth Mm -hmm. words do matter and people can sometimes get hung up on them but also but even beyond that so many people in this field really want to help people rather have that side be seen than a different narrative for sure Rebecca Flick, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would want to conclude? No, I think words matter sums it up. And I know it's not your favorite, but if we continue to motivate this community, everybody that serves someone with infertility to work together and uh, help influence employers and lawmakers, state legislators, you know, that access matters. We have a, a great voice in providing a better healthcare system for people struggling to build a family. 
word sensitivity isn't my favorite, but you are my favorite. Every REI practice in America should check out Resolve. Notes for Resolve's professional membership. We'll put Fertility Matters for our Canadian friends in the show notes. Mm -hmm. UK friends, Australia friends, I don't know who y'all are dealing with. So email and we can add those as well. Rebecca Flick, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Griff. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices growth and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on fertilitybridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast, and we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes.